Well, good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Weekly for Saturday, February 11th, 2023. And our top story today, it's Secure Saturday. Today, we're talking about the employer match for student loan repayments. And joining me now to discuss this and a lot more, Betsy Mayotte is the founder and president of the Institute of Student Loan Advisors. Well, Betsy, it's great to see you. I really appreciate you uh, joining us this morning on Secure Saturday. Thanks. It's nice to be back with you. Yeah, it's always great. I miss the I miss your cats. Hopefully they'll make an appearance. Betsy, we often come to you for advice around student loans. And uh, the reason I wanted to reach out to you and have you appear on the program this week or this Saturday is one of the provisions of the SECURE Act allows the employer to match the student loan repayment. Because oftentimes as a as a repayer of student loans, you have to make that choice between retirement or the student loan debt. And this seems like a win-win. I want to get your reaction. Tell me what you think of this provision when you first heard about it. Yeah, I was actually really excited when I first heard about it because to me, it acknowledges, and this is something unfortunately we don't see very often, the idea that the average student loan borrower is not who a lot of people, and by people I include policymakers, think that it is. I think a lot of people still view the student loan borrower as the early 20-something, and therefore people aren't necessarily thinking about that student loans can be a barrier for saving for a, a robust or even adequate retirement fund. The fact of the matter is half of all student loan borrowers are over the age of 30 and a quarter are over the age of 45. And here at Tisla, we hear from borrowers all the time that say that they're unable to save for retirement because they're paying on their student loans. So to me, this provision of the SECURE Act acknowledges that fact and is trying to find a solution. So, you know, my understanding of how this would work is, let's say my student loan payment was $300 a month that the employer would then be able to take the that equivalent or the $300 and if they chose to make a contribution to their employees retire to my retirement fund in that example. Yeah. Uh, so it it it's a way to ensure that these borrowers that are struggling with student loan debt don't later down the road end up struggling with retirement because of it. Yeah, I I mean you shouldn't have to choose either or. You're absolutely right. And to your point, uh, this is based on uh, some stats. I think it was in the street. I'll give them full credit. Age 35 to 49, they owe the most. Get this, Betsy, $622 billion in federal loan. And that's scary because that's close to, close to your prime earning years. If some of that money is going towards student loans, not for retirement, when you hit age 65, you could be in the hole. Right. And it's a tough choice to make. You know, do you aggressively pay down that debt uh, or are you aggressively contributing to retirement? And the thing is, it's a Sophie's choice, because if you choose to throw all your extra dollars at retirement, that's certainly going to help you with retirement. But you're going to end up paying more back in interest on the student loans in, in most cases. So, um, yeah, that I, I again, that's. I was excited to see that provision because it made me think that policymakers are starting to recognize that student loan debt is no longer just a young person's issue. And, and it's and there's in, interconnectivity. I think I was refreshed to know that people don't just think about retirement. They don't just think about student loans. They don't just think about health care. 
buying a home, all these issues are really interrelated. And we look, we have a financial life. We have a financial life. Obviously, when we're born, we're not earning money. But as we go in age, we have certain financial events. That, to me, is really heartening. Last question here, Betsy. Uh, is it your thought, and you talk to a lot of um, employers, you talk to a lot of borrowers. Is it your thought that most employers will probably go for this, knowing that the financial wellness and the the mental health aspects of this of being financially under this under stress is so burdensome. You know, I think it depends. We're in kind of an itchy time right now uh, in the workforce, right? We're seeing a lot of big layoffs uh, and so on in companies trying to reduce costs. So in that respect, that could temper the take up on this provision. But what I'm also seeing is other employers are looking for ways to entice their employees to stay and looking for more unique benefits. Uh, and this could be one of those benefits that employers will choose to use to entice their top talent to stay. Uh, you know, we're also on a related note, I'm, I'm also starting to see more employers recognizing that just assisting their employees with their student loans in some way, uh, whether it be monetarily or whether it just be providing resources for help and education, is uh, becoming a more popular benefit. We're hearing from here, Tisla, we're hearing from more and more employers who are looking to do just that. So uh, I do think, and especially as the economy recovers and the workforce recovers, I, I definitely see this as being a more popular option and one that employees going into a company are going to be demanding. Yep, I, I, I agree with you. And what makes it even more of a positive is that the administrative burden oftentimes you know, if if a lot if the audience isn't that familiar with a four hundred one k plan, there's a lot of administration that has to happen both in the employer and the record keeper. This makes it pretty easy. It's a lot of self certification. You don't need globs of globs of paperwork to ensure that someone is is being truthful or honest. There's some kind of qualification certification, so it makes it really easy. And I guess we're going to have to wait and see when the affected dates come up just how many employers take this on. But I really like this, Betsy. Betsy, we're going to have to leave it there. Really great talking with you. And look, we look forward to having you back on the program on a full episode of BRN AM sometime in the near future. Thanks so much for joining us. And we talk to you again very soon. See you later. And when we come back, we'll take a look at some of our best segments for the week. You're not going to want to miss it. You're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN Weekly. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy.
featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeffrey Snyder, and this is your BRN Retirement Update. Investing in any financial instrument requires a lot of research and a lot of due diligence, and that includes so-called financial influencers to evaluate their financial interests. And while there are some great um, personalities out there with a lot of really good information, it's just important to, you know, kind of do your own research and understand that these persons or, you know, folks are trying to sell you a product, essentially. So remember to always peel back that onion a little bit further to make sure that investment is appropriate. With your BRN Retirement Update, I'm Jeffrey Snyder with the Broadcast Retirement Network. Are you stuck with a low credit score, a credit report and score that's causing you to be denied credit or pay higher interest rates than others for the same things? Then do what Terrence did and called Credit Repaired for your free credit evaluation to help restore your credit. I started thinking about buying a new house and my score wasn't where I needed it to be. I called and spoke with one of the representatives and we just had a good conversation and I, I liked what he was saying. Just one call for his free credit evaluation was all it took to start back on the track to repairing his credit. I'm seeing the deletions and I'm getting the report, so I know something's being done. It does make a difference to me. All it takes is one call to get started. Credit repair has given me a second chance to have a better credit score. Don't let a low credit score hold you back another day. Do what Terrence did and make the call for your free credit evaluation. Call 800-819-4152. That's 800-819-4152. Again, 800-819-4152. Welcome back. This week, we discussed how consumers can prevent vehicle theft. Let's take a look. Setting aside Hyundai Kia, over time, the manufacturers have, have added immobilizers, these anti-theft devices as standard equipment. So that's a great step in, in the right direction. And those manufacturers that are that have vehicles that are very vulnerable to specific problems like catalytic converter theft, some manufacturers are taking steps to figure out aftermarket solutions to try to impede this, you know, uh, slow thieves down uh, from being able to to steal these incredibly expensive components. Uh, you know, it, it's. It's an interesting thing, the vehicle identification number, the VIN, uh, many folks don't realize that one of the reasons the VIN system was put in place was as an anti-theft mechanism. And increasingly over time, as the VINs become part of sort of vehicle commerce, that's really helped to tamp down whole vehicle theft because it's very difficult now in the US to transact business with a, a stolen vehicle. There's just so many digitized records out there, uh, online proof of insurance, online proof of registration. 
it's difficult to steal vehicles. So that's been a step in the right direction. But the interesting thing is the VIN standard requires some expensive components to be stamped with the VIN, such as the engine and the transmission. But the ironic thing is now some vehicle components like headlights, uh, like catalytic converters can be incredibly expensive and can cost almost as much as, as say the engine or a transmission, which that was just something that the standard never envisioned. And so, in, it, so let's talk about the wheel lock a little bit first. Um, and you know, it's, it's questionable whether or not those wheel locks actually can prevent real skilled vehicle thieves from stealing a vehicle that they want. However, Hyundai Kia in the areas that are experiencing the worst problems with regard to this, this TikTok theft issue have offered those clubs to police departments to distribute to owners of these vehicles. And you know, the interesting thing there is, I'm guessing that uh, a youth who's watched a TikTok video and, and understands how to defeat the, the, knows how to start these vehicles, they probably don't know how to defeat that club and or if they're really determined to do this kind of uh, theft, they'll probably just walk past a vehicle with a club and look for one that doesn't have one. So if I owned one of the Hyundai Kia vehicles that had this vulnerability in one of the areas where this was a problem, I'd seriously consider getting a club. Now, pivoting away from uh, the Hyundai Kia issue and, and the vehicle theft issue in general, I think one thing that consumers often don't realize is that comprehensive coverage, again, that's the insurance coverage that pays for theft losses, uh, is not a required coverage. No state requires a customer to have that coverage. However, if you have a car loan or a lease, the financial institution is going to insist that you have that coverage. But that's something where once people satisfy a loan, or you know, they often will drop that optional coverage. And what I'm getting at is if, if you own one of these vulnerable vehicles and you're in a place where the theft of these vehicles is a problem, make sure you've got that comprehensive coverage so that if your vehicle is stolen, uh, you, you will, you'll have coverage. Auto insurance is, is a highly competitive uh, market. And you know, I, I don't know that there's ever a bad time to, to, to take a look and see what other rates or better rates might be available. And we also discussed managing complexities for public pension plans. Let's take a look. Yeah, so CalPERS, as you indicated, Jeff, is the largest U.S. public pension plan. We serve about two, you know, 2.15 million members, of which about 670,000 of those are receiving a benefit. Uh, interestingly enough, and I think this might be a topic for us to talk about a bit, is that we have about a half million inactive members in the system as well. So of that 2.15, half half a million of those are inactive, which means that they have kept their contributions on account, but are no longer working for an active uh, public employer within our system. Uh, we have about 2,800 employees and we have regional locations around the state where we do more of that direct member servicing and uh, can talk a little bit about what we did during COVID and during the pandemic, just to make sure that those service levels remain high for all of our membership, primarily here in California.
<laughs> uh, we're about $443 billion, you know, to be a little more specific. Uh, you know, at the end of you know, two, two fiscal years ago, we, we crossed that $500 billion mark. And then we all saw the markets adjust pretty significantly. Uh, that brought us down to around 435 billion. I think we roughly said, like I said, about $445 billion as of today, which also represents about a 71% funded uh, ratio. Uh, again, you know, at the time of the assets being high, our funded ratio hit that 80% target of which really moves us out of what I call that, that red zone of, you know, where we're very careful, careful about the risks we're taking on. We're very careful about downside risk protection and making sure we have resiliency in the portfolio itself. And so that 80% gave us a little more breathing room to take on more risk, to take on more new innovative uh, investment strategies that also might tie up some of our liquidity. But uh, again, we can talk about the investment allocation. Uh, there's some interesting work happening there. We So as the rest of the world saw, you know, CalPERS shut down its uh, brick and mortar throughout, you know, all of our locations. And we came back uh, basically a year ago in, in March and came back into our hybrid workforce. But we have very creative, innovative uh, team members here who felt the need to find ways to fill that gap in information where we would have members coming into the office, whether they had an appointment or didn't have an appointment. And we had a queuing system and we had you know, all this technology to help with the support of our membership. Uh, but what they came up with is taking advantage of the various platforms that really emerged and became really a part of our daily routine. I don't know what we would have done without you know, these virtual platforms, but they found a way to replace that in-person counseling through uh, the Zoom platform. Uh, and so, you know, members as they're contemplating retirement and many members retired during COVID, I, I think that, you know, that decision point, maybe that was something they had considered prior to COVID, but when COVID hit, you know, many of our retirees or many of our active members said, now, now's the time. I've been thinking about this for a while. Now's the time to do that retirement. But they don't want to retire without checking in with their trusted advisors, the people who know how to take full advantage of all of these benefits that they have earned throughout their career. So we needed to find a way to replace that high touch service that typically happens at time of retirement with something that could take place during a pandemic. And this is where that virtual platform came in. And frankly, it has stayed in place. I, I think our members have found it to be convenient. They don't have to get in their car, depending on where they're at in the state of California, that commuting into the office and getting on the interstate can be a very difficult commute, time consuming. And so I think the virtual platforms will be with us uh, for a very long time, if not forever. And I think we'll likely start to replace more of those in-person appointments. I think we're roughly 60-40 uh, post, you know, now that we've been operating in this new model for a year, we're roughly 60% choosing to make a virtual appointment versus 40% coming into the office. 2022 was a rough year for you know, any- <laughs> For all of us. For, for everyone, us. you know, CalPERS didn't escape, uh, you know, the market volatility, uh, certainly. And, you know, we have a 350 person investment team and we operate out of Sacramento, California. We don't have, uh, you know, offices on the East Coast. We don't have offices around the globe. Our entire team is sitting here, you know, or sitting here in their homes over the last couple of years. Uh, in, in Sacramento, California. So that volatility is is very difficult. It's very difficult for our members. 
uh, to see a negative return, a negative double-digit return again, you know, similar to what we saw in 08-09. And then what did we learn, you know, past financial crises? What did we learn and how did we apply that learning to the crises that we saw in 2022 and ongoing through 2023? How do we really exploit and take advantage of a very strong liquidity position that the fund is in? And so uh, member communication became paramount, uh, employee communication during the pandemic became paramount, but member communication to explain, you know, we're long-term investors, there is, you know, a lot of market volatility, but the way that we look at the portfolio is through two different lens, right? right? So one is, how do we grow the portfolio at a 6.8% assumed greater return? How do we grow that in a negative return environment? And then how do we make sure that we have resiliency and downside risk protection in the portfolio being underfunded? That becomes very, very important as well, that we want to soften you know, some of the bottom, which means we also likely shave off a little bit of the upper returns when the markets are doing extremely well. And that's what we saw in 2021. Uh, and 2022 is that that downside risk protection paid us last year, paid us a bit last year, paid even though it was a negative return. And then the year before in the up markets, you know, we did shave off a bit of positive return as well. So I think we, our board continues to, you know, really discuss what's the right mix. We have a newer uh, chief investment officer, Nicole Musico, who came in at the end of March last year. So this March, she'll be here one year, who uh, where the asset allocation of the strategic asset allocation of the board approved was already in place prior to her arrival. But now it's her, you know, it's her job, job number one, to execute on that new asset allocation, which does include more of the portfolio being allocated to these alternatives, more to private equity, more to infrastructure, more to real assets, more to private credit. So we happen to knowing that that strategic asset allocation was in place, we needed to find a CIO as well as the associated team to implement on that very different strategy. For the most part, much of our portfolio sits passively. Uh, we're, you know, we, we hug the benchmarks. And so when the board makes a decision in order to get the building block comfortable with, finding the right talent at a time that there has been absolutely a war on talent and a very competitive job market to find the people who can execute on those new, more active strategies. But again, positively, the, the fund sits at a very good liquidity position. So we're actually able to fund deals where maybe some of our peers were not able to because they're either at their allocation limits or they're at their liquidity limits or whatever that might be. We actually found a lot of great deals last year and we're seeing great deals come in this year as well. But it's it's a it's a reminder that most pension funds are truly long-term patient capital investors. And we have to be very thoughtful about decisions that we're making in any given year, that those are decisions that can be sustained through you know numerous market cycles. We're we're certainly not day trading, we're certainly not you know, doing much on the active side in public equities yet, although that will certainly be a part of the strategy at some point as well. And, but really where we're finding opportunities are through the alternative side. So if we think about private markets generally, not just private equity, but private markets generally, upping our co-investment opportunities with strategic partners, partners where we have high conviction, it's you know hiring Anton Orlick as someone who we just recently hired to run that team. I have a lot of confidence in him and the work that he's done. He's actually a return. He, he worked at CalPERS for part of his career, so we were able to get him back. So we're very excited about that as well. 
Um, you know, how do we handle these separately managed accounts? We get a lot of direction from the board that they want to bring more investing in-house. So what does that mean for an institution, a public institution that uh, has most of its employees or, in, or all of its employees other than me are civil servants? How do we take care of compensation when then we are competing against potentially, you know, other, other managers. And so separately managed accounts, co-investments all added in doing more in venture capital. We really didn't do much in venture capital. When we did a 10 year look back at the private equity portfolio, we saw a lot of missed opportunities, including opportunities in our own backyard in Silicon Valley. We just missed out on that venture phase. We also, when you compare our portfolio to our peers, as, as you referenced earlier, uh, the allocations, um, are, are quite different. Our private equity allocation has always been a bit lower than our peers. And when private equity has done well, and we've seen private equity do extremely well in market cycles, we've really lagged our peers simply because we didn't have as much allocated as they did at the highest performing asset class. Then we also added that 5% to private debt, to private credit. And now we're in that process of building out a team where you know the initial strategy is to use external managers. But really the idea is to bring that in-house. We have great underwriting in, you know, on our credit team and whether that's on the fixed income side, but we took someone out of our fixed income team to run it, to run private credit. And now she's in the process of trying to fill out you know, the talent that we need to execute on a 5% allocation of a $445 billion portfolio. And then infrastructure, we think infrastructure is gonna be really interesting. Uh, we led the board through making some policy changes to allow us to do more infrastructure outside of the US. Um, you know, they approved that policy framework as a part of the execution of the new strategic asset allocation. So there's a lot of work happening on the alternative side under Nicole. And then uh, I would say just hiring. We, we've got to hire up for the skill set and the talent to run those more active strategies. And so that's really been the focus of the last six months. And I think will be the focus of this upcoming six months is to get the team in place uh, to execute on what was decided a year ago. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Weekly. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more, all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Post. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, we'll visit our website and, of course, all of our streaming partners. We're back again tomorrow for BRN Sunday. I'll be joined by members of the media, academia, financial services, and government as we analyze all the news and events. You're not going to want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio-only podcasts so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device. Tax audits, tax liens, 
wage garnishments. Every day we hear stories like this about good folks who are simply struggling to pay their bills. Each of them are living a frightening IRS tax nightmare, and they are afraid it will destroy their lives. I'm a divorced single mom, and my ex-husband left me and the kids with a lot of unpaid bills, including unpaid taxes. I was really starting to show my stress on my kids because the IRS had sent me a letter demanding a huge payment from me. I couldn't afford it. So then the IRS was threatening to garnish my wages. I'm already living paycheck to paycheck. That would have put me over the edge financially. It truly seemed hopeless, but then a friend at work told her to call the tax relief line. The people at the tax relief line, they told me about something called innocent spouse relief. They worked it out so that all of the taxes from my ex are not my problem. I don't know how that works and, and I don't care. All I care about is that I don't owe the IRS a dime and they are not going to take my paycheck. Even if it seems hopeless, you should call the number on your screen right now. There is absolutely no cost for the call or the consultation. You are under no obligation. If you are worried that the IRS could garnish your wages, seize your assets, even take your home, call us right now. The Tax Relief Line is here to help you. Now you have a knowledgeable, professional team of tax experts that are ready to negotiate with the IRS and fight for you to save you money. The Tax Relief Line's professionals have successfully negotiated thousands of cases, reducing and sometimes even eliminating the tax debt for their clients. It's very easy to get started. Simply call the number on your screen right now. You don't have to live in fear anymore. The call and the consultation are free.